Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Meg, today's host of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Rolf Nolasco Jr. about his new book, Hearts Ablaze, Parables for the Queer Soul. Rolf, welcome to the show. Thank you, Meg. It's good to be here with you today, tonight. Yes, we're so excited. Um, Rolf, I wonder if you could begin our interview just by telling our listeners about who you are and um, what led you to write your book. Of course. Um, Well, let me start with uh, my own country of origin. I am originally from the Philippines, uh, grew up there uh, all of my life, and then um, went abroad, uh, went to the U.S. to study. And then um, after, after many years, I'm now at Garrett uh, Evangelical Theological Seminary. I'm the Ruben Pito Professor of Spiritual Formation and Pastoral Theology um, at Garrett at, um, in Evanston, Illinois. And I've been there for, uh, for about five years. Uh, but I've lived um, um, a queer life for most of my life and uh, really been blessed to have the opportunity to put in writing some of what I've been thinking about using uh, the parables of Jesus. Now, this is um, my second book that has a queer focus. The first one um, is called God's Beloved Queer. Um, And then I thought, since um, the Bible has been weaponized to harm and traumatize our queer community, I thought I'll turn the tables around and use it as a resource for queer flourishing. And so uh, so the book came to be um, partly as as my own um, personal manifesto, partly uh, coming together of uh, queer UMC clergy that I've interviewed, um, and partly just uh, my own um, ongoing um, reflection on uh, the ten parables of Jesus, and I'm just so really humbled by the opportunity now to speak about it through your podcast, uh, Megan. Thank you for opening up space um, and time for um, for this book for for me as a queer person of color, one really champion the flourishing of all queer folks, um, and that is pretty much. Um, uh, a snippet of who I am and um, and the reasons behind the writing of this book. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I get that sense on every level of this book. Like as soon as you, I know all of our listeners are going to go buy this book, but as soon as you look at this book, it's so beautiful on the outside. And then when you get into it, it's this rich and deep book that you know, I honestly wasn't expecting such a powerful read. And so I'm so glad that you brought it out into the world. And we're so excited to have you on our show today. Um, before we do jump right in, I was just curious, um, when you were working on this book, who did you envision would grab it and gain the most? So um, I wrote it during the pandemic. Uh, it part uh, for 10 weeks between February to about March, April. Um, but I, I grew up um, in an evangelical space. So for most of my adult life, that was the space that I moved and lived in and, and I was formed by evangelicalism. Uh, and so 
in terms of my primary audience, it would be this book um, was written as um, as some sort of a devotional conversation piece for evangelical queer Christians who are having to grapple with uh, their faith and their sexuality, but also been immersed in you know the parables of Jesus, uh, been immersed in Bible reading. Um, and, and really wanting to invite them back to the table and rediscover uh, the gems and the wisdom uh, that we can glean from the Bible, from these pan parables, not simply as people who will listen in and let somebody teach us about this, but, uh, but, um, but to invite them to become um interpreters of the parables so so it's really an active invitation to come together and and almost like um queer folks let's dig in and see what the scripture has for us to uh to think about and to reflect that and to live out so so that was really my intention is to be an agent in interpreting for our own realities the which these parables because for the longest time you know the text has been used to clubber us literally and metaphorically and and i thought there is another way of approaching this text in a way that is really attentive to our needs to our desires and longings to uh to really follow the path of christ and i wrote about the queer christ in chapter 10 and really have a different experience of God, of the scripture, of just really coming together to mine uh, the queerness that is inherent in all of these parables. Mm. Oh, yes, that is so good. And, you know, even from the very beginning, you start out with one of the most powerful questions anyone could ask while reading the Bible. You say, Are the liberative purposes of God inhibited or unleashed as I or we encounter these texts? And wow, can you tell us more about that? Because that blew my socks off. Like right in the introduction, we're talking about liberation here and how we are seeing that with our own lens of how we're engaging the text. So I would love to hear more about that. And thank you for for redlining that or for for making that explicit because that was really is my intent that is the norm in terms of how i would want to approach uh uh the scripture to make sure that that i would come away from reading the texts and and encountering the word and encountering the living word uh rated or having a sense of okay this this feels right this really calls out my own humanity this calls out the image of God in me. This calls out uh, the various ways that I can participate in God's um, recreation or recreating um, what is um, around us and, and what is within us. And so that was really very intentional. I always ask that question, not only in the text, but also in my relationships, in my teaching, in my scholarship, activism, I want to make sure that when I show up, either as a scholar, as an author, as a professor, even as a clinician or spiritual director, do I create conditions for life to flourish? Or do I create the possibility for the flourishing of all people? And and for me, that has been 
such um, a powerful norm, a powerful question to ask when I engage in soulful work like writing a book. Um, oh, yeah, that is, it's just such a powerful way to, it's so intentional, you know, to put that in that book, but also for us to take as readers to take that into every aspect, like you're saying, in our careers, in our relationships. I love that so much. And and I and I go back to um, um, that whole promise that uh, God in Christ um, that He came into the world um, so that we might have life um, and, and abundantly. And for me, for me, abundance uh, really has something to do with just the love of God that is gratuitously given to all of us, to all of God's creation. And and since I am an icon of God. You are an icon of God. Everyone is an icon of, of God by virtue of the image of God in us. We do have then the the capacity to give and to receive love from one another. And I think in my, um, in my encounters with the world, um, whatever hats I may wearing at that time, I want to make sure that when I show up in those spaces that I would come away, that people would come away uh, having encountered by divine love that is expressed uh, by my own unique embodiment as a queer person of color. And that is quite different from the way I felt growing up in the Philippines or, or the way I felt when I was um, attending church in California because I went to Fuller for my Master of Divinity. And really felt ashamed and and almost dismissed, uh, uninvited, um, really contrary to God's radical inclusion of all. And so, but I persisted. I persisted going, um, not because I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I enjoy uh, the suffering inflicted upon me by, by people. Because there is this innate sense of, you know, underneath all the cacophony and noise and and dogmas and 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 got and uh, power couched in gospel, there is this um, inner witness that I am loved as I am by God, and that, I think that became my own interior protection against the onslaught of hate and. That 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 was coming um, in many different directions uh, as a queer person of color. As I wanted, I wanted to be a, a conduit. I wanted, I wanted to um, to to provide a different. Um, in 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 psychotherapy, we we have a we have a, a phrase that's called corrective emotional experience, and I. I want to offer a corrective emotional experience for my queer siblings who also have experienced some of what I've experienced. And hopefully, by the grace of God, we can rediscover and, and, and begin to hear more loudly God's delight upon us. That God waits and, and really is giddy when... Um, when we realize that we are just loved as we are by God and there is nothing about us, there is nothing about my pain, my trauma that will separate me from being the beloved queer of God.
if that makes sense. Oh my gosh, Ralph, you are, I'm like in therapy and you're preaching directly at me. Like this is so good. I'm taking notes over here. Corrective emotional experience. Like, yes. Thank you so much for sharing all that. That was so, so good. Oh man, I don't even know how to move forward after that. So I'm just going to jump on to um, one of the things that I loved about the book and specifically in chapter three, you take this parable of the mustard seed that is so familiar to us, you know, one thing that we could have lulled to sleep by because we know it so well, and you call it the queerdom of God. And you talk about the mustard seed that, you know, in our westernized American perspective, specifically what I'm familiar with, you know, we talk about this mustard seed story as in like the oak tree of faith, like this huge revolutionary growth moment. And I love that you talk about it in its actual roots, like its geographical roots of like, actually, this is a roadside weed. And I love that because you also take us and talk to us about a piece of queer experience that most Americans and Christians don't even realize that there are so many queer youth of color, especially that are experiencing homelessness because of small-minded doctrine. And I I thought this take on the parable, especially with your particular intersecting identities, really opens our eyes to the extravagance and the depth of the hospitality that we are called to as Christians. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that to us. So the queerdom of God, that that name queerdom just came to me when I was actually writing the book. Um, um, I have been using, uh, instead of king, kin, K-I-N, dum. And so I wanted something different, similar to kingdom, uh, that is more expansive, non-binary, very inclusive. And I thought maybe the queerdom of God is exactly what the mustard seed is trying to tell us and and so i i wanted to be playful in my approach to um to to this to the readings of these parables because i have come to a point in my life as an academic as a as a person uh to just not have any shame describing uh truths that i'm uncovering truths that i'm discovering um, and, and really, and really imaginatively and creatively um, in, be engaged in wordplay, and, and this is one of those things because I think, I think the, king, the kingdom of God is queer through and through, um, and, and 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 by that I mean being queer means disrupting anything that is certain, disrupting anything that you know, um, advertise it itself as the norm or normative, it it really creates disruption and imbalance. And I think that is what faith, living faith is about. And so somehow the word queer is almost like an invitation to hold things loosely, to to not be so arrogant and stubborn about one um, particular uh, belief, um, because we're we're still discovering so many things about us, about the world, about God, and so so there is always this opening to discover new things, and and so it's it's a very for me it's a very humbling um, experience to to see God's kingdom as God's queerdom because God is not done yet recreating the world, um, and, and and I think. Um, 
queer folk and, and, and people have been marginalized by society play an important role in, um, in, in creating uh, the queerdom of God here on earth. So that was really intentional. And, and, and part of the parable of the mustard seed is that the, the message there really is what at the end of the parable, um, it says um, the mustard seed is actually, um, if I could just, um, it says here, it is like a mustard seed and, and, and the parable is talking about the kingdom of God. And then towards the end, it says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its And so I tried to um, um, make explicit how queer folk and queer communities really have become shades and, and, and a place of rest and oasis for, um, for, for a lot of queer youth, for a lot of queer folks who have been um, thrown away, discarded by their family, by their religious community because of who they are. And so I just want to almost like affirm and encourage our queer community to be, to be the nests, to be the oasis, to be the shades for one another, because I think that is um, what we are called to do. And, and, and I'm even in challenging our queer community to be that for everyone, even for them hurt them because I think um, um, we're, we're in a we're in a we're in a situation where our understanding of human sexuality um, has been almost like preset before we even know our own sexuality and so there it's all around us even before we can name our own erotic desires and so and so there's a lot of of deconstruction, there's a lot of questioning, there's a lot of uh, just communal work that needs to happen for us to really unravel uh, God's gift to all of us. And and so the queer community then is like a mustard seed in that in that we we can offer shade um, for everyone. But but the, the other piece here is um, we're everywhere too, right? I mean, it's outside weed, and you cannot just uproot us and burn us and then we'll be nowhere to be found no we're everywhere right (laughs) we're everywhere we're you know we're bible study leaders we're in the kitchen we're pastors we're singers i'm talking about the church context here we're everywhere and and we're very productive um very uh jovial um but we also are in so much pain and and being traumatized and and so we 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 live in this world grappling with all these emotions uh, because because the world says your sexuality is an abomination. It's 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 not it's not it's not uh, natural. Um, it, it it goes against the precepts of the scripture. You know you know the the, the discourse. So we carry that in our bodies alongside you know, experiences of pride and support and love from our allies, from our queer communities. And so uh, as, as a shade, um, as a nest um, for birds to, um, to, to rest um, for, for people of all various colors and, and backgrounds, the queer community is such, um, it's, it's that one space that they, that they can um, um, enter into and, and feel solace, comforted and, and supported. 
Mm, I love that. And I think the perspective that you share for those who read this book that don't identify as queer, I think they'll they'll get get it a little more on like the absolute resistance that comes from just being queer and Christian and how the shade that queer Christians provide is so much more rich and true than that of anyone else, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's not to say, too, that, that in, in these queer spaces, there are no racism, ageism, and other forms of violence, because because even within our community, and I'm also very open about this um, in my book, there is, in some ways, social stratification or hierarchy within the queer community. And, and I was talking to someone about this, and, and I think this showed up in... Um, in, um, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there is actually a caste system where the white gays and the white gays, um, and I'm talking about gay folks here, are at the top of the pyramid. And the brown and the black and trans uh, siblings of ours are at the bottom. And, 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 and so you, you could also see our, our community mirroring what's outside and, and replicating the harm that we have received from, uh, from one another. And so part of being in the queerdom of God is to queer our own spaces so that we don't replicate the kind of injustice and oppression that is also rampant in our community. And so this is, this is um, a clarion call um, for the queer community to both advocate for our own flourishing, but also to have the courage to question, to challenge experiences of oppression that, that, that are operative in our own spaces. And so my, my prayer would be, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on all of us. Right, because we have been, we have been condi- conditioned and have internalized um, a lot of power and abuse from um, uh, a predominantly heterosexual patriarchal society, and and replicating that and and violating each other's humanity and bodily. The so Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Wow. Um, You know, since you bring up queer spiritual spaces, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more, because you do talk about that in Chapter 5, Q Connections, the parable of the sower. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about those queer spiritual spaces and what they've meant to you on your journey. Sure. Um, You you probably don't know this um, about me, Megan, um, and and. You, you won't probably be able to deduce this from the book, but I'm a very right. introverted person. What? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, I'm shocked. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I, I sometimes confuse myself as well when I, when I say that. And it's very disorienting because I know that when I show up in classes for three hours, I'm the most extroverted person, but I'm also, I was... You know, I, I tend to be quite intentional in those spaces, and so it takes a lot out of me to uh, to do that. And I'm saying this and connecting it to my introversion because of my um, um, not necessarily background, but my commitment to live a life of contemplation. 
mindfulness, um, which I think has given me such a tremendous resource as I wrote and reflected and thought about what um, I was writing in the book. And so my, my queer spiritual space personally includes silence and solitude. Um, and, and contemplation allows for that to, to happen because constantly, you know, I talked about how this innate sense of God's liking of me is, has always been there. That is where, that is, I think, where I experienced that more powerfully in silence and solitude. But contemplation also allows me to uh, be hospitable to all of the emotions that I've been carrying, the responses that I get when I feel harmed and traumatized. It really has allowed me to uh, pay attention to my bodily sensations, my thoughts and feelings, how my mind sometimes uh, goes um, in many different directions as a way to quell some of the anxiety that I'm experiencing. So there's so there's that gift as well. But but I think more more importantly, the life of contemplation allows me to see more clearly what's happening in the world, how disjointed we are to one another, how disjointed we are to God who um, waits and who waits patiently and watches over us with such delight and anticipation. How disjointed we are in with 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 the planet Earth, and so so that's that's one queer spiritual space that works for me. But part of my introversion as well is you know I don't have a gazillion friends. I have a few friends, and those friends really have become uh, my my rest, my uh, my oasis because because I know that when I'm with them, either digitally uh, online or in person, I know that I feel um, accepted and, and, and I don't have to do anything to be liked by them, to be accepted by them. And then there are those who are markedly queer, you know? I mean, we hang out with, um, with my queer friends. I go to queer conferences, um, anything that will somehow embolden my commitment um, for, towards queer flourishing because I can do that within the context of community. And so I, 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 I make it a point that I um, learn from and, and be in solidarity um, with my people because that's also part of my calling, um, even though I know that after spending hours and days connecting with people that I would have to return back and find silence and solitude again to be able to uh, get energized and, and refocus. But 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 personally, I I'm just um, I'm drawn to contemplative spirituality because it's it's a combination of I think my personality, um, it's a bashedly um, commitment to social justice, while at the same time attending to your own interiority. Wow. I'm just taking notes throughout this interview because I am loving what you're saying so much. So I just want to reiterate, thank you so much. Um, thank you, Megan. Oh, my God. 
I'm like over here writing notes about solitude and silence and where you find one of the things that you just said that I'm going to have our readers just I'm going to say it again so they can write that down. You were talking about how in contemplation, you have a space that allows you to be hospitable to your emotions and the trauma that you feel. And I think that is so necessary for folks. You know, we need to be able to tend to ourselves, especially if we're in more hostile environments or if we're just navigating a spirituality that we're just figuring out or even a sexuality that we're figuring out. We need to have a space where there is that that hospitality for ourselves to to go there. And I think that is just so beautiful. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciated that. And, you know, in my work with clients in my previous lives, I told them, and, and this is true for most queer folks, it's so hard to expand compassion and grace towards ourselves, right? Because we have been deformed by a lot of things, by a lot of teachings, by a lot of experiences. And so if, if, we, if we have difficulty extending loving kindness to ourselves, if we find it difficult to offer self-compassion towards towards ourselves, then I would invite us to think of a person who has shown that level of compassion uh, to us. It could be a friend, it could be, you know, a parent, uh, a mentor, a professor, a fellow activist, a friend, and and, and imagine that person extending um, compassion and love and grace towards oneself and eventually um, hopefully we'll have the capacity to give that to ourselves because I think I think that is mostly the struggle that most queer folks have is the shame and trauma are so deep it's hard to love and like oneself yeah. and um, and and in contemplation um, if we stay just a little bit longer in that morass of pain we may discover the still, small, gentle voice of God that says, you are my beloved. And hopefully if we go back to that space interiorly within to hear and listen to that still, small, gentle voice, then it might get louder and louder and louder until it becomes such second nature to us. But that requires a lot of work therapeutically that requires a lot of perhaps a spiritual direction might uh, um, open those doors into um, the discovery of that a lot of accompaniment by other people who are willing to alongside us as we begin to reclaim and rediscover our sense of belovedness One of the things that I really valued also throughout this book was there was like this building to and toward queering of Christ and the divine. And there was just one quote in the chapter um, called Queer Christ, the parable of the wise and the foolish builders that I just want to read here. It's so powerful. Um, It says, part of unshackling the queer Christ from the sanitized Christ is to swing the closet wide open and center the crossings that Jesus did repeatedly to meet people like us where we are and as we are. And I'm just wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about that quote. It's so powerful. Oh, Megan. Um, 
That's thank you for uh, for choosing that line there. I um, I needed to do that for my own sense of sanity first, just discerning the white Christ and from the queer Christ, because I grew up again with a particular vision and image of who God is in Christ, and usually it's a white Jesus that in some ways uh, carries out the colonial agenda of, uh, of the white God. And, and, and because I was bombarded by such messaging early on, I didn't have the guts to question it. I grew up believing that that was the truth. Um, and, and I think part of just acquiescing to uh, that belief is this other dimension of colonization where you feel uh, um, inferior about who you are, about your own, my own Filipino identity, my own identity as a as a, a, a as a person, and so and so it 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 it, it allowed for that kind of dogma to seep in, and 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 that became, you know, my my theology, our theology, growing up. But, but I knew that there was this discordance between what I was hearing with what I have been experiencing about who God is, this still gentle, small voice that says, I delight in you as you are. And so I wanted to, um, to phrase, to, to, to put that question out, to invite queer folks to, 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 to personally and collectively to disentangle the sanitized Christ from the queer Christ. For the queer Christ, as the gospel, as I understood it, as I read it, the queer Christ is, you, you cannot miss the queer Christ from the gospels because the queer Christ is, I mean, who is the queer Christ hanging out with? Right? I mean, who is the queer Christ dining with? Who is the queer Christ challenging um, and, and, and rebuking? I mean, that's, that's like, that is just so queer. And, and, and you know, we discovered the word, but, but, but Christ in his ways of being um, and, and his life and his passion is even death and resurrection is just mad queer. And so, that's, that's just, I mean, it's just so out of this world. And isn't that what queer folks are about? I mean, we're just, we're just a little, you know, old. Yes, <laughs> yes, beings, yes. Right, fabulous, strange beings. And so it's, it's all, yes. like, how did I miss this? How did I miss this? Well, I missed it because for the longest time, the version of Christ that was preached about even the image of Christ that were hanging on the walls um, were white Christ. You know, these are, so, 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 so it, it's, it's hard to, um, to, to, to not, to, to, to see it any other way except what we have been uh, conditioned to think about who God is. And so, and so I think part of the queer Christ in us, because the queer Christ lives in us, right? It is no longer lives, but the queer Christ, well, the queer Christ that lives in us invites us to really begin the process of examining theologies, spiritualities, practices, relationships that are either life-affirming or life-creating. So we go back to... Uh, to, to that, to that, 
uh, to that, um, not necessarily a standard, but a, but a guide um, in discerning um, relationships and ways of being in the world. And, and if it's life affirming, and, and, and by that, I mean, you know, as a queer person, I get to exercise my gifts, I get to love, I get to hopefully um, 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 participate in, in, in peacemaking, in justice making. If, if, if I'm in those relationships and I experience myself as alive, then, then that, that truth is embodied, that, that Christ has come into this world so that we may have abundant life. The flip side of that is what I have experienced growing up. It's what other queer folks have experienced or are still experiencing. And so the queer crisis is there and, and, and you know, together let us um, reacquaint ourselves to, to, to that queer person of Christ. Oh my goodness, Ralph, I could talk to you all day. I literally could just sit here and ask you questions and hear your stories and your perspective. And it is so life-giving and it's so joyful and I'm so, so glad for it. But we have already taken up a lot of your time. So before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you are working on now. What am I working on now? Okay, so the spring semester is started today, so I'm prepping for for a crisis and trauma uh, course at Garrett Seminary. But in terms of um, in terms of uh, um, I, a book project, I have uh, an outstanding book contract with Wiffenstock, and it's called uh, Bluer Than Blue, Depression, Dark Night of the Soul, and Joy. Um, and, um, and I will be on sabbatical in 2024, so that would be my project. But that book really has um, changed its um, its core, if, if I could use that, because of what happened the last three years, um, i.e. The, the COVID-19 pandemic really has made explicit the inequality, the disp- uh, that um, the effects of, of COVID-19 has impacted communities of color um, disproportionately. And so I wanted to, to write that book with what happened the last three years in mind, because it's still very fresh. People are still struggling with the after effects of COVID-19 psychologically. People are seeking counseling uh, more so now than ever. And so I wanted to, to make sure that I document uh, some of what had happened and are still happening in this book, um, but also to connect that with um, sometimes our depression looks like a dark night of the soul, and sometimes it's hard to determine which is which. And so that is also part of what I'm hoping that I will uh, write about. Um, but but um, but I don't want to end it in a in a in a gloomy sour note and. <laughs> and 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 provide some hope and so joy as um as um um not not necessarily as a um, a procession or as an endpoint but as a reminder that um that joy is there within as well um 
that focusing on the negative will do damage to our souls. Um, and, and I know psychotherapeutically, we can only deal with ma- uh, negative emotions, not with another negative emotion, but with positive emotions. And the joy that I'm talking about there is the joy uh, that comes from within, the joy that comes from just being grateful about simple things in life, the joy that comes with being on solidarity with other folks. I mean, so that's that's my... That's my next book project. But if you ask me in terms of what I would like to be working on, I don't really want to be working on anything. <laughs> because I think, I, and I'm so looking forward to, uh, to this summer because, um, because I'll, I'll get to travel. And, and, and part of traveling for me, before the pandemic, I would go to monasteries. And there I would rest. And, and I might still do that. But I think rest is a form of resistance. And so I'd like to be able to offer uh, myself the, uh, the, the, the urgent need uh, to simply rest. And, and, and I want to do that outside of this cold weather uh, that we have right now. So, so that's, that's, my, uh, that's what's on the horizon for me in the foreseeable future. Oh, my goodness. Well, those things just sound so powerful and so good. And I'm looking forward to the moment when you do get to rest in some warmer weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just want to thank you again so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed spending time with you and I can't wait to continue to support your work. And when you are done with your book, we're going to bring you back in 2024, 25, when you're ready to announce your um, next book. So thank you so much, Rolf. Thank you, Megan, for this wonderful time. I'm just, you're just, you're so generous, and I feel so encouraged by your feedback, by your by your response to what I just shared mm. with you. It just it, it, there are no words except gratitude <laughs> and and good feelings yes. inside. Yes. We're hearing you say what you said this whole hour. Mm. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Okay. You too.